Hello, and welcome to another episode of A-Minder. I'm Ellen Rowe, and I'm back to fill you in on the latest in the field of vascular contributions to Alzheimer's disease. This episode covers papers that showed up on PubMed in January 2023, and we've got 18 papers to cover this month, with a focus on understanding mechanisms underlying how vascular risk factors increase risk for Alzheimer's disease, a lot on amyloid transport, and some really interesting therapeutic insights. Stay tuned to learn more about how blood vessel health is implicated in Alzheimer's disease, and for a disease perspective a bit more lively than the classic amyloid cascade hypothesis. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. All right, thanks for tuning in, everyone. It's good to be back. As always, I'll kick things off with some context of the episode for the new listeners, so go ahead and skip forward if you're already familiar with the landscape of this research, or if you're not new here. So the brain is one of the most highly vascularized organs, with no more than a hair's width between any neuron and its closest blood vessel. As you likely know, or can infer from that fact, the cerebrovasculature is critical in keeping the brain healthy and functional. It plays a lot of key roles, like being the highway of nutrient and oxygen delivery to the brain, it's a main route of waste disposal, including amyloid clearance, and its highly selective blood-brain barrier is critical to keep blood proteins, pathogens, and immune cells out of the brain. When these functions are compromised, like when there's reduced blood flow to the brain or when the blood-brain barrier is compromised, this can lead to metabolic stress and inflammatory cascades. So really, the blood vessels may actually be responsible for some of the initiating events in the Alzheimer's pathology. As a field, we're starting to appreciate that vascular dysfunction is an early event in the Alzheimer's pathology, as we see changes in cerebral blood flow and loss of blood-brain barrier integrity with age and with the main genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, ApoE4. As we tune into the importance of the vasculature in maintaining brain health, we're learning a lot about how things might go wrong through the course of developing Alzheimer's and how maintaining vascular health and function could be a new way of preventing or treating the disease. So hopefully that got you convinced that we should be paying attention to the blood vessels in the context of Alzheimer's disease. A few notes before I dive into the content of this episode, a reminder that Aminder includes all papers from peer-reviewed journals for any given month, meaning that we don't exclude any based on our own perceived quality of the science or accuracy of the interpretations. We also mostly draw from the abstracts for the content of our episodes, so be sure to check out the full papers for more details, and really to make your own judgments on the quality of the science before you accept anything as fact. We provide free numbered bibliographies with all of our episodes that you can find in the show notes, so you can note down the numbers of the papers that pique your interest here, and track down the full manuscripts using our bibliography. We're also currently collecting feedback on Aminder, our podcast, and would love to hear from our listeners. We have a survey linked in the show notes that will be open until the end of April, and we'd love to hear what you think we're doing well and where we can improve. As a bonus for filling it out, you'll also be entered into a draw to win a $15 gift card. And finally, to wrap up the housekeeping items, some common abbreviations you'll hear me use in today's episode are, of course, we have AD for Alzheimer's disease, MMSE for the mini mental state exam, A-beta, sometimes just amyloid for amyloid beta, CAA for cerebral amyloid angiopathy, which is the deposition of amyloid into the vasculature walls, and BBB for blood-brain barrier. Any others I'll define along the way. 
So with that covered, let's dive in. Starting us off today, we have four papers focused on cerebral blood flow and hypoperfusion, with the first one being a rather exciting one titled Hypoperfusion Precedes Tau Deposition in the Entorhinal Cortex, a Retrospective Evaluation of ADNI2 Data. This is by first author Kapadia and last author Zakanga, and it was a collaboration between the University of Toronto, the University of Baroda, Oxford University, and the University of Birmingham, so a big group effort, published in the Journal of Clinical Neurology. In the field of vascular contributions to Alzheimer's disease, one of the main questions is a modified version of the age-old question, which came first, chicken or the egg? Here, lots of work is being done to tease apart which comes first, vascular dysfunction or the classic Alzheimer's disease pathological hallmarks. There's a lot of evidence for both sides of the coin, but here the authors specifically focused in on the relationship between cerebral blood flow and tau deposition in the entorhinal cortex, one of the earliest signs of AD pathology. For this, they leveraged a subset of the ADNI dataset across the AD clinical spectrum that had cerebral blood flow measured by arterial spin labeling perfusion MRI at baseline and tau PET at baseline and six years later. They found that cerebral blood flow in the left, but not the right, entorhinal cortex was significantly lower in those with AD or MCI compared with cognitively normal controls. Interestingly, they also found that higher increases in tau PET signal at six years compared to baseline mapped with lower cerebral blood flow at baseline in the left entorhinal cortex, and that cerebral blood flow could predict tau deposition six years later. So really, this is some pretty convincing evidence that vascular dysfunction occurs upstream of some of the AD pathology. So sticking with the theme of hypoperfusion, we have paper number two, titled On the Identification of Hypoxic Regions in Subject-Specific Cerebral Vasculature by Combined CFD MRI. And this is by first author Perina Jova and last author Kenjeris, and it was a collaboration between groups in the Netherlands, published in Royal Society Open Science. So this group set out to define a technique to study blood flow and oxygen transport using a non-invasive imaging technique. They combined MRI and computational fluid dynamics and modeled oxygen mass transfer in two different ways. A simple passive model, where oxygen is treated as a free agent in plasma, and a more complex active model where it's bound to hemoglobin. It turns out, neglecting hemoglobin in the passive model leads to underestimating oxygen transfer. Using this new method, they can identify hypoxic regions in the cerebral vasculature with the added benefit of subject-specific mapping using MRI. If you're doing imaging work looking at cerebral blood flow or hypoxia, be sure to check this one out. Next up, taking another step forward from hypoxia to full ischemia now, we have a paper titled PRDX6 released by Astrocytes Contributes to Neuroapoptosis During Ischemia. This is paper number three by first author Hu and last author Hui from the first affiliated hospital of Chow University in China, and it was published in Neuroscience. So peroxyredoxin 6, or PDRX6, is an antioxidant enzyme that regulates cytokine-induced peroxide levels in cells. Since oxidative stress seems to play a role in neuronal damage as a result of A-beta and tau buildup, it tracks that PDRX6 has mostly been found to be protective in the context of Alzheimer's disease. While others have investigated PDRX6 in the context of amyloidosis and tau pathology, these authors set out to investigate it in the context of ischemia. To do this, they use an oxygen glucose deprivation and reoxygenation scheme to treat murine astrocytes in vitro 
and followed these studies up with a mouse model using middle cerebral artery occlusion. They found that PDRX6 was released by astrocytes with the oxygen glucose deprivation and reoxygenation, and that it actually worsened neuroapoptosis in a co-culture model. Upon further probing, they narrowed this effect down to signaling involving PDRX6, RAGE, and JNK. When they used a RAGE antagonist injected directly into the brain ventricles of their middle cerebral artery occlusion mouse model, they found that this rescued some of the behavioral deficits and ischemic lesion volume. While antagonizing RAGE likely has mechanistic effects beyond the astrocyte PDRX6 pathway investigated in vitro, it's still an interesting demonstration that there is RAGE-mediated exacerbation of ischemia reperfusion injury. Off the top of my head, I know that pericytes express RAGE, and a big player in ischemia reperfusion injury is pericytes contracting to hinder microvascular blood flow. So it'll definitely be interesting to see where the follow-up studies from this work go. And pivoting a bit more to explore how hypoperfusion may be a mechanism behind vascular risk factors, our next paper is titled Impact of Atrial Fibrillation on the Cognitive Decline in Alzheimer's Disease, which is paper number four by first author Nakasi and last author Taki from Tohoku University in Japan, and it was published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. One of the prominent so-called vascular risk factors for AD is atrial fibrillation, which is a regular beating in the atria of the heart, effectively compromising blood flow. Here, the authors wanted to better understand why it's a risk factor for AD, so they leveraged neuroimaging techniques in a retrospective cohort of 170 individuals with newly diagnosed AD or amnesic MCI who had MMSE scores available. Specifically, they used MRI to quantify cerebral volume, microbleeds, and white matter lesions, and SPECT imaging to measure regional cerebral blood flow. In the cohort, 14 individuals had atrial fibrillation, and this subgroup also had lower MMSE scores and more periventricular white matter hyperintensities than the rest of the cohort. Interestingly, they found no differences in regional cerebral blood flow or any of the other outcomes between groups. While it was a relatively small sample size of individuals with atrial fibrillation, these data suggest that this risk factor may act primarily through vascular and white matter damage illustrated by the increased periventricular white matter hyperintensities, rather than cerebral blood flow, as we may have thought, to impact cognitive outcomes. It'll be interesting to see some follow-up studies with larger cohorts to validate these findings. So with that, we'll move on to more of a mixed bag section that I've broadly titled More Clinical Insights. So first paper in this section is another deep dive into a vascular risk factor for AD, and it's titled Heart Failure Decouples the Precuneus in Interaction with Social Cognition and Executive Functions, and this is paper number five by first author Schroeder and last author Mueller, and it was a collaboration between several groups in Germany published in Scientific Reports. So heart failure is kind of a broad term, but it's basically when the heart doesn't pump blood as well as it should. To tie things together here, atrial fibrillation, which we unpacked in the last paper, can lead to heart failure. Specifically, these authors wanted to determine the impact of heart failure on brain connectivity, and they leveraged functional MRI to do some investigating. In a cohort of 75 midlife individuals without dementia, they found that heart failure decreased brain connectivity in the precuneus, a cortical region near the back of the brain involved in many functions including memory, response to pain, and social and executive functions. Using data mining approaches in BrainMap and Neurosynth to cross-check the identified deficits in the group with heart failure, 
they found that they mainly corresponded to neural networks governing social and executive cognitive functions. To add some more depth to this finding, in a nine-year follow-up in their cohort, they found that there was more severe cognitive impairment in the group with heart failure, and that it was specifically impaired social cognition and not memory. So taken together, this suggests that heart failure may uniquely disrupt the percunius and decouple it from other brain regions associated with social and executive functions. Exactly what causes its decoupling is still unclear. It will be interesting to follow up on this by digging into some regional cerebral blood flow data, perhaps, or maybe taking a closer look at white matter hyperintensities as we saw in the last paper. Speaking of white matter hyperintensities, next up is paper number six, titled Association of Estimated White Matter Hyperintensity Age with Cognition in Elderly with Controlled Hypertension. This is by first author Sung Kim and last author Woon Kim, and it was a collaboration between several groups in South Korea published in Neuroimage Clinical. So this work builds off of previous work from the same group where they created and validated white matter hyperintensity probability maps with data from individuals in Korea, from which they could predict a person's age from their white matter hyperintensity distribution. They also found that a person's predicted age, based on this model, was inflated if they had hypertension or a stroke, which makes sense as these individuals have more white matter hyperintensities than your average person. So here they wanted to know whether controlled hypertension and or the predicted white matter hyperintensity age could predict cognitive decline. The study included 855 Koreans without dementia, of which 326 had a two-year follow-up. They found that an old white matter hyperintensity age mapped to a faster two-year cognitive decline with a series of cognitive tests and significantly increased the risk of incident mild cognitive impairment in the cohort. They also found that the white matter hyperintensity age mediated the effects of hypertension on cognitive scores at baseline and over the follow-up indicating that vascular damage appearing as white matter hypertensities may be a mechanism by which hypertension increases risk of cognitive decline. Very interesting approach and results. I really like the idea of this standardized scoring system for white matter hyperintensity age, and it would be really great to develop a standardized map for other ethnic groups and seeing if these results hold up in more diverse backgrounds. So pivoting a bit now to get into the nitty-gritty of brain bleeds and their associated diagnoses, we have a paper titled Characterizing Mixed Location Hemorrhages and Microbleeds with CSF Markers. This is paper number seven by first author Jensen Condering and last author Kuhlenbaumer from the University Medical Center Schleswig-Holstein in Germany, and it was published in International Journal of Stroke. Cerebral amyloid angiopathy, or CAA, which is the deposition of amyloid beta into cerebral vessels, is diagnosed based on hallmarks found close to the surface of the brain, mainly lobar cerebral microbleeds or cortical superficial siderosis. According to diagnostic criteria, bleeds in the deeper regions of the brain actually rule out a CAA diagnosis and instead point to hypertensive arteriopathy or a diagnosis called mixed location hemorrhages if they're seen alongside shallower bleeds like the ones defining CAA. Here, the authors wanted to better understand this intermediate diagnosis of mixed location hemorrhages, so they used a combination of biomarkers across over 100 individuals with a spectrum of diagnoses, including CAA, mixed location hemorrhages, AD, and healthy controls. The goal was to position this intermediate diagnosis along the spectrum of diseases according to biomarker values. According to the CSF fluid biomarker results, mixed location hemorrhages landed between healthy controls and CAA, 
with AD capping off the other end of the spectrum after CAA. Check out the paper for a detailed discussion of their biomarker results, but overall the authors suggest that CAA and mixed-location hemorrhages may not be mutually exclusive, but rather that the latter is part of a spectrum with contributions from CAA. Next up, we have paper number 8, titled Role of Enlarged Perivascular Space in the Temporal Lobe in Cerebral Amyloidosis. This is by first author Na and last author Liu from the Yonsei University in South Korea, and it was published in Annals of Neurology. So as I mentioned in the intro of this episode, the vasculature is a main route of waste disposal in the brain, including amyloid clearance, and this happens through a few different avenues. There's direct transport across the blood-brain barrier via specific receptors on endothelial cells, and there's also a more global mechanism called perivascular drainage, or glymphatic drainage, where the brain waste wiggles along the basement membrane of vessels while CSF washes along the perivascular spaces to clear it. While there's now considerable evidence that perivascular drainage happens, the link between enlarged perivascular spaces and other AD pathological hallmarks has been a bit murky. So these authors set out to better standardize the quantification of perivascular space size to further investigate this relationship. They developed a new rating scale for perivascular spaces in the temporal lobe and visually rated structural MRI scans from 272 individuals across the clinical AD spectrum from cognitively normal all the way to AD. With their new rating scale, they found that those with a high degree, over 10, of enlarged perivascular spaces in the temporal lobe and a low degree, less than 10, in the basal ganglia, was predictive of amyloid positivity based on PET results, and that a high degree of temporal enlarged perivascular spaces associated with tau positivity as well, though not significantly after adjustment for amyloid and neurodegeneration. While these results suggest that quantifying enlarged perivascular spaces in the temporal lobe can be predictive of amyloid pathology, I think more importantly it reinforces the idea that disruptions in waste clearance through the vasculature is associated with amyloid accumulation in the brain. And with that, we'll pause for a bit of a break before launching into the second half of the episode, and honestly there are a lot of great papers on the blood-brain barrier, amyloid transport, and therapeutic avenues in this next half, so stay tuned. I want to take a short break to convince you to join me and the editing team here at Aminder. We are responsible for the high-quality, polished episodes you hear, and our team is looking to grow so that we can cover even more episodes in a month. If you're interested in learning the ropes, send us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. We do have other positions on our team if you're interested in those. I find it to be a rewarding auditory and visual challenge, and I love working behind the scenes to get the best out of our hosts. So if you want to feel like a superhero after editing out mistakes seamlessly, please reach out to me and to the Aminder team. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years. And sadly, no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Alright, we're back. Let's launch right into our next section on the blood-brain barrier and amyloid endothelial cell interactions, 
with our ninth paper of the episode, titled P. gingivalis bacteremia increases the permeability of the blood-brain barrier via the MFSD2A caviolin-1 mediated transcytosis pathway. This is by first author Li and last author Tang from China Medical University, and it was published in the International Journal of Oral Science. So I remember a nature paper from 2020 from the weiss Corre group that really put MFSD2A on the map for me. If this is the first time you're hearing of it, it's a protein expressed in brain microvascular endothelial cells that seems to suppress bulk transcytosis via suppression of caviolin-1 expression. So, when you lose it, you have a more non-selective transport across the blood-brain barrier, making it more permeable. The weiss Corre group found back in 2020 that aging increases BBB permeability, in part through a tilt toward less MFSD2A and more caviolin-1. Okay, so back to this paper. I've talked in length in my other episodes about the gingipain hypothesis of AD, which involves proteases secreted by P. gingivalis, the bacteria causing gingivitis. If you haven't heard of this yet, it's worth a quick Google search. So here, the authors wanted to understand how P. gingivalis might induce increased BBB permeability, so they administered a series of tail vein injections of the bacteria to rats, and did complementary in vitro experiments in a BBB transwell model treated with the bacteria. They found that increased BBB permeability in the rats was present via the Evans blue assay, and caviole were detected in the endothelial cells in both models. Following this up with the more mechanistic experiments, they found that down-regulating caviolin-1 or overexpressing MFSD2A in endothelial cells rescued the increased permeability in the transwell model. Interestingly, they also found that arginine-specific gingipanes were hydrogen-bonded to caviolin-1, providing some more support, potentially, for the gingipane hypothesis. Overall, this paper provided some pretty convincing evidence that P. gingivalis increases BBB permeability through increased transcytosis. It seems to me like a lot of AD risk factors point to this MFSD2A caviolin-1 pathway, and it might merit some more research attention. So next up, we've got a book chapter, but I figured it would be useful to include here to put some methods on the radar. It's number 10 in our free bibliography, and it's titled Three-Dimensional Imaging of Fibrinogen and Neurovascular Alterations in Alzheimer's Disease, and it's by first author Merlini and last author Akasoglu, and they're from the University of California in the USA, and it was published in Methods of Molecular Biology. Since BBB disruption is increasingly recognized as a key event in the AD pathology, we need good ways of quantifying it. A common way to quantify BBB disruption in post-mortem tissue is to look for blood proteins outside of the blood vessels, with the main one being fibrinogen. Here the authors describe a method for co-staining for fibrinogen, amyloid beta, and the vasculature in solvent-cleared human brains. Looks like this will be very useful for resolving the spatial distribution of these pathological hallmarks. Definitely excited to see this applied across brain regions in large cohorts. Next, we're going to hone in on the endothelial cells, with this paper titled A-beta-42 treatment of the brain side reduced the levels of flotillin from endothelial cells on the blood side via FGF2 signaling in a blood-brain barrier model. This is paper number 11 by first author Nakamura and last author Mishikawa from the Nagoya City University in Japan, and it was published in Molecular Brain. So I personally had never heard of flotillin before reading this abstract, so let's start there. A quick Google search showed me that it's a ubiquitously expressed scaffolding protein involved in the formation of caviolar vesicles, and it can also end up in secreted exosomes. 
Back in 2019, this group published that decreased levels of flotillin in the blood mapped with amyloid deposition in the brain. And here they wanted to dive deeper into the mechanism of this relationship. They used an in vitro model of the blood-brain barrier with human stem cell-derived brain microvascular endothelial-like cells, or IBMEX, plated on the top side of a transwell insert, and rat astrocytes on the bottom of the well, mimicking a blood side and a brain side. They added A-beta-42 to the brain side, and found that the endothelial cells secreted less flotillin, mirroring their biomarker results from 2019. As you may have guessed from the spoiler in the title, they also found that amyloid treatment decreased levels of fibroblast growth factor, or FGF2, on the brain side, and that adding FGF2 to the brain side was able to rescue flotillin levels on the blood side in a dose-dependent manner. With this data, it seems that the group can explain their biomarker findings by reduced FGF2 secretion from astrocytes due to amyloid beta overload, which led to lower FGF2 signaling and flotillin secretion from the endothelial cells. Next up is a paper that I found incredibly interesting. It's number 12 of the episode, and it's titled A-beta efflux impairment and inflammation linked to cerebrovascular accumulation of amyloid-forming amylin secreted from pancreas. This is by first author Verma and last author Despa, and it was a collaboration between several groups in the United States, published in Communications Biology. So in case you didn't already know, because I feel like it's not actually really common knowledge, Amyloid is not exclusive to AD. It's actually a more general term to describe aggregates of proteins with a characteristic fibrillar morphology. Here, the primary focus is on a different type of amyloid than we typically talk about in Aminder. It's the islet amyloid polypeptide, commonly called amylin, which is co-secreted by beta cells with insulin. Very interestingly, the authors here show that amylin concentration in the blood is higher in individuals with AD than in normal controls and that circulating amylin can accumulate in monocytes and co-deposits with A-beta in the microvasculature. They followed this data up with a series of experiments in rats where they found that expression of human amylin led to cerebrovascular inflammation and impaired A-beta clearance through multiple pathways. They also have an interesting set of bulk RNA-seq data from the brains of the rats expressing human amylin, showing differences in immune and hypoxia-related genes. Very impressive converging data set suggesting that increased amylin in the blood could be a culprit feeding into AD pathology. I'd also like to point out here that type 2 diabetes is a pretty well-established risk factor for AD, and it's characterized by insulin resistance, which can lead to states of unregulated insulin secretion or hyperinsulinemia. It's really interesting to consider, based on this data, that this may lead to cerebrovascular damage and deficits in amyloid beta clearance via increased amylin. If this is the mechanism, this may be why there isn't as robust of an association with type 1 diabetes and AD, since it's characterized by loss of insulin-producing beta cells, so there wouldn't be amylin accumulation. Anyway, very cool paper, definitely check it out. Okay, and with that, let's launch into our last section of the episode, Therapeutic Avenues Targeting the Vasculature, starting with paper number 13, which is titled Tanchinone 2A Ameliorates A-beta Transendothelial Transport through CERT-1-mediated endoplasmic reticulum stress. This is by first author Wen and last author Zhang from the Guangzhou University of Chinese Medicine in China, and it was published in the Journal of Translational Medicine. First time hearing of Tanchinon 2A? Me too. A quick Google search told me that it's the main effective component of a plant called red sage, which is historically used in traditional Chinese medicine. There is some evidence that this compound may be protective against AD, 
primarily through its anti-inflammatory effects, but these authors set out to characterize its effects on brain microvascular endothelial cells. For this, they used the BN3 cell line with A beta 42, with or without tangenin 2A, and followed up their in vitro experiments with some further investigation in the APP PS1 mouse model of amyloidosis. From their in vitro experiments, they found that the therapeutic compound mainly docked to serutin 1, a protein that's already pretty popular in the AD field for its generally protective effects. They then validated that the compound's action was through serutin-1 using an inhibitor specific for the protein, and they also found that it could reduce endoplasmic reticulum stress. They then moved into mice to demonstrate that tensionon-2A treatment improved cognitive performance and increased expression of A-beta-clearing LRP1, while decreasing expression of RAGE, tilting the direct BBB transport toward amyloid clearance rather than accumulation. Very thorough investigation of this compound, illustrating its potential protective effects on brain microvascular endothelial cells. Next up is another one of my favorites from this episode, and it's titled Anti-Malaria Drug Artesanate Prevents Development of Amyloid Beta Pathology in Mice by Upregulating PCALM at the Blood-Brain Barrier. This is number 14 of the episode by first author Kisler and last authors Lokovic from the University of Southern California and it was published in Molecular Neurodegeneration. So if you've been in the field for a while, I'm sure you've probably heard of PCALM, a prominent genetic risk factor for AD and a protein reduced in the endothelial cells of people with AD. But you might not know what it stands for or what the protein does. I sure didn't. So it turns out that it stands for phosphatidylinositol binding clathrin assembly protein, which illustrates that it plays an important role in clathrin-mediated endocytosis a more targeted mode of transcytosis than bulk endocytosis mediated by caviolin-1, which we've already heard a lot about in this episode. So notably, PCALM can facilitate direct transport of A-beta across endothelial cells. These authors hypothesize that increasing PCALM expression may be a viable way to decrease amyloid pathology in AD, and they went about it in a very elegant way. The quickest route to therapeutic development is to repurpose a drug that's already been approved by governing bodies like the FDA, so here they started by screening over 2,000 FDA-approved drugs in cell lines expressing luciferase driven by the PCALM promoter. A really smart approach. If the drug could increase PCALM expression, there would be more luciferase signal. As you could guess from the title, the lead hit ended up being an anti-malaria drug called artesanate, and they tested it in a series of mouse models including PCALM deficient, the 5XFAD mouse model, and a LOX-CRE system for endothelial-specific knockout of PCALM, and all the crosses in between. They found that the drug increased PCALM expression twofold in brain capillaries of the 5X FAD PCALM deficient cross, while also significantly reducing amyloid load and improving cerebral blood flow responses, BBB integrity, and cognitive performance. When the drug was tested in the LOX-CREAM mouse model with endothelial-specific PCALM knockout, these beneficial effects disappeared, indicating that the increase in endothelial PCALM mediated the improvements. A very interesting paper start to finish, providing a convincing case for repurposing this drug for AD. Switching things up with this next one, we have a paper titled Blood-Brain Barrier Opening of the Default Mode Network in Alzheimer's Disease with Magnetic Resonance Guided Focused Ultrasound. This is paper number 15 by first author Meng and last author Lipsman, and it was a collaboration between the University of Toronto and groups in Sweden and the UK and the USA, published in Brain. So while the content of my episodes generally focuses on protecting the blood-brain barrier integrity, 
There's a whole other neuron or glia-centric side of AD research that's focused on getting past the BBB for targeted drug delivery. Recently, transcranial magnetic resonance-guided focused ultrasound has come into the spotlight as a powerful tool to reversibly increase BBB permeability for drug delivery purposes. Here, the authors focused on the important sanity check that this wouldn't have lasting negative effects on the AD pathology, including BBB integrity. The study included nine individuals who had three bi-weekly focused ultrasound BBB opening treatments and up to six months of follow-up. BBB permeability was successfully transiently increased in the hippocampus, anterior cingulate cortex, and precuneus of the participants without any considerable adverse events, and they did not experience worsening of their cognitive decline trajectory. Fluid biomarkers didn't show any indication of reduced AD pathology, but they also didn't reflect any persistent BBB dysfunction. There was no increase in plasma PDGFR beta or CSF to plasma albumin ratio. So while it was a relatively small study, this work provides important insight into the safety of transient BBB modulation for improved therapeutic delivery to the brain. Next up, we have paper number 16, titled Evaluation of Copper Chelation Therapy in a Transgenic Rat Model of Cerebral Amyloid Angiopathy. This is by first author Ambi and last author Miller, and it was a collaboration between several groups in the USA, published in ACS Chemical Neuroscience. Here, the authors built off of previous data showing that copper co-localizes with amyloid beta aggregates in the vasculature, which is thought to contribute to cytotoxicity through production of reactive oxygen species. With this data, they hypothesized that removing the copper through chelation could improve outcomes in a model of CAA. So they tested exactly that. They used the Dutch Iowa transgenic rat model of CAA and treated it with a copper-specific chelator called tetrathiomolybdate through IP injections. And surprisingly, they found that the treatment led to increased amyloid load in the hippocampus of the transgenic rats and increased microbleeds in wild-type rats. They also noted increased copper content in the vessels and increased co-localization with amyloid aggregates. All in all, seems like copper chelation therapy is not the golden ticket for curbing CAA. Next up is cognitive effects of cleostazole in Alzheimer's dementia patients with peripheral arterial occlusive disease, a case control study. This is paper number 17 by first author Qian and last author Yang from the Kaohsiung Medical University in Taiwan, and it was published in Geriatric Gerontology International. So cleostazole is a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor, which is often used as an antiplatelet agent. Importantly, phosphodiesterase 3 is also expressed in smooth muscle cells, where its inhibition can lead to vasodilation. I haven't covered a paper on this drug since June 2022, where it showed promise in a rat model of neurodegeneration, so I was excited to see it explored in a clinical setting here. These authors set out to determine whether the drug may impact cognition in individuals with AD who also have peripheral arterial occlusive disease, a condition involving narrowing of the arteries at the extremities. They used a retrospective case control design that involved cognitive testing at baseline and following 12 months. Their case group was 31 individuals with AD and peripheral arterial occlusive disease who were being treated with cleostazole and standard AD treatment with acetylcholinesterase inhibitors or NMDA receptor antagonists, and their control group was 31 individuals with AD alone being treated with standard AD treatment. They found that the only cognitive domain that differed between groups 
was category fluency. I think with this study design, it's a bit tough to tease out whether the drug itself had any real impact, since the control group didn't have peripheral arterial disease. But I'm looking forward to seeing more follow-up studies investigating the repurposing of antiplatelet agents for AD. And finally, last but certainly not least, we have effects of candesartan on cerebral microvascular function in mild cognitive impairment, results of two clinical trials. And this is by first author Henley and last author Hajar from Emory University School of Medicine in the USA, published in International Journal of Stroke. So if you've made it this far on the episode, hopefully you can appreciate that vascular function is intimately tied to brain health. There have already been quite a few investigations of the impact of drugs used to treat cardiovascular disease in the context of AD, largely with mixed results. These authors asked a more direct question with data from two clinical trials. Can drugs commonly prescribed to treat high blood pressure improve cerebral microvascular function in people with mild cognitive impairment? The studies used fMRI to measure cerebrovascular reactivity in response to a CO2 challenge at baseline and after 12 months of treatment as a proxy of microvascular function, and the analysis was done on 102 participants from the Calibrex study, which compared candesartan, an angiotensin receptor blocker, with lisinopril, which is an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, and also with 59 individuals from the CEDAR study which compared candesartan to a placebo. Check out the full paper for more details on both trials. Interestingly, they found that candesartan significantly improved whole brain cerebrovascular reactivity compared to placebo and compared to lisinopril, independent of blood pressure. In an exploratory meta-analysis of the two trials, they also found that improved cerebrovascular reactivity in the hippocampus mapped to improve attention working memory, and executive function in those treated with candesartan. Really interesting results adding to the mounting data that candesartan may also be effective in the context of AD and or vascular dementia. And with that, we're at the end of the episode. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed learning about all of these interesting areas of research. If you did, we'd love if you subscribed to us and wrote us a review on whatever platform you're using to listen to us. This helps us reach more scientists like yourself and helps us make sure that we're keeping Alzheimer's research a well-oiled and informed machine. A reminder that we offer free bibliographies with all of our episodes that you can track down the full papers that I've summarized here. You can find a link to all of our bibliographies in the episode notes. We release bibliographies for the topics that we don't currently cover with full episodes as well, like fluid biomarkers. So check those out as a resource to start your literature search. Huge thank you to the whole Aminder team for bringing this project to life, and especially to our sorting team for their help in parsing out focused episodes like this one. Isabel, the editor of this episode, our musician Anusha for writing the beautiful music that you hear in each episode, and our whole management team who keep Aminder going strong. If you're interested in joining this wonderful team of ours, we're always recruiting. Send us an email with your CV and let us know what you're interested in helping with. You can also reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching Aminder Podcasts. Also, a reminder to please fill out our feedback survey linked in the show notes. And of course, thank you, our listener, for tuning in. We hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Bye for now.